0: However, and wherever you listen to Vision, you can be sure that the announcers, programs and music will help you look to God daily. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision.
1: The different worship styles across what you might even estimate somewhere between 10 and 15,000 churches in Australia is really significant from the modern rock band style worship of some of the nation's mega churches to the unplugged praise and worship in a small country church. But what's been happening to that style we might call liturgical worship or say even with a cathedral organ music or choirs and a high level of classical musicianship. Well, there are some worship styles that have been preserved for centuries. Claire Johnson is a professor, professor of liturgical studies and sacramental theology at ACU, that's the Australian Catholic University. And she's interested in centuries old musical treasures and how they connect again with new generations. Claire, a special welcome along to 2020.
0: Thank you, Neil. Lovely to be here.
1: Claire, let me ask you at the start here, um, liturgical music, and for people who go to sort of a modern evangelical or a Pentecostal church, this almost seems so far removed from their experience, but that in itself is a liturgy, isn't it? Uh, Every church has its own liturgy. How do you describe that for people?
0: Absolutely. So, in the I'm I'm from the Roman Catholic tradition, and there would be lots of resonances with your High Church Anglican, High Church Lutheran, um, various other traditions that work by a book. So, a, a liturgy is is far more um, according to an official. public authorized form of worship than perhaps some of the freer churches uh, in their worship styles have available to them. So we're a little more constrained perhaps, but um, we we work according to an official book that's been authorized and is celebrated in communion with our local bishop.
1: What do we make of the thought that fashions change, music styles change, and from generation to generation, even century to century, there are all sorts of changes that happen. And somehow or other, the church in all of its diversity is able to adapt in special ways. How do you reflect on those things?
0: Well, there are certainly fashions that come and go in terms of music. Um, The 20th century particularly has seen so many and such uh, an explosion in terms of our our ability to access so many different styles of music. In terms of worship music, the Roman Catholic tradition has had a a very long history of music. In fact, musical notation first came out of um, Christian worship, so we didn't have notation until our churches started writing it down. Styles are very interesting and there will always be um, some that come and some that stay come and go and some that stay um, the roman tradition has p- possibly the most notable form of its music being that of gregorian chant which of course first came about in notation in about the ninth century and we've had it going ever since then but of course that's not it not been the only music that we've had um, and now our, our Christian brothers and sisters in other denominations, particularly, have been, I think, leading us in terms of being able to incorporate other styles of music into the Roman Catholic traditional Gregorian style as well. So bring in folk music, that is music from the people, um, and certainly nationalistic music. And then when we get into the 20th century, we get all sorts of other styles coming into play. It's really interesting though, in terms of Catholic church teaching, it doesn't say that any one style is specifically excluded, but it does require certain things of the music that's incorporated into what we do when we worship.
1: And I think worthy of note, too, if anyone's thinking, oh, Catholic versus Protestant, uh, when you say music notation came out of Christian worship, and that dates back to, uh, you know, a thousand years ago, uh, in some sense, uh, when I often will talk about this sort of thing, we're talking about the heritage of Christian churches, whether you be Catholic or Protestant, because it all goes back into that one lineage, doesn't it? So uh, when we talk about worship, when we talk about liturgy, sometimes as, as we think about fashions changing, we wonder about passing on those relevant ways of worship to the next generation. And this is where you're especially interested, because it might appear that there's only a small number of young people who might be interested in this really traditional style of liturgical worship. How do you reflect on that? <sighs>
0: I think young people can become interested in all sorts of things. And I think we often underestimate what they can be interested in. What I find is adults tend to project our own prejudices and preferences onto young people and then tell them what they think instead of introducing them to a whole wide range of different things and asking them what they like. Um, and often they'll be quite surprising in terms of what they choose. Now, it might be that because we're constantly surrounded by sound and, you know, we get into a lift and there's music playing, we go to the airport and there's music playing we're on a plane and there's music playing we're constantly surrounded by it so sometimes pairing it right back to just one line of sound and everybody singing in unison can be something that's soothing and calming and really beautiful in terms of meditation for young people so constant noise and constant layers of different um um bands of music at the same time isn't necessarily what everyone likes all the time so we we shouldn't underestimate what young people like um, and we should be exposing them to absolutely everything we can while also maintaining our tradition and saying this is something that we've sung for a thousand years and that in and of itself can be quite intriguing to young people the fact that this has actually been our song. This has been our way of praying for such a long time. So let's step into that and see what it feels like.
1: And when you've got a music style that, as you say, can last a thousand years, you can't just write it off easily and say it really is just a change in fashion or a change in listening preference. Uh, there's got to be something very significant in that, uh, which leads me to something really Uh, Really interesting that you say, you ask why death metal and princess pop are not appropriate for church. Some people will say, well, that's not our style of church either. But, uh, But, you know, when some church expressions have even these more radical ways of worship, what are your thoughts here?
0: So they're quite different in and of themselves, princess pop and, and death metal. Um, so I'll, t- I'll treat them separately. The thing about princess pop is that it's, it's pop music. Now, pop just by its nature is ephemeral. If you think about a bubble, it floats around for a little while and then it pops and disappears. So pop music is actually not designed to stick around for a long time. So it's something that moves through very quickly. Princess pop is is kind of a pejorative title really, but just to sort of, it's focusing on a personality. One person who is the focus of attention and their song is the most important thing. Now, when we come to liturgical worship, It's about the work of an assembly working together to praise God. It's not just about one person performing in front of everybody else in our Roman Catholic tradition. The idea, if you have a leader of song or a cantor operating in the liturgy, so one solo voice, is that they're, they're drawing everyone else into prayer. They're drawing everybody into their own prayer, their own voicing of prayer. So often you'll have an interaction or a conversation within the music between a cantor who perhaps sings the verses of a psalm in order to lead the response of the assembly when they come in and have their part. So, Princess Pop is particularly um, unhelpful in our Roman Catholic tradition because it's very much focused on the cult of personality of the singer, whereas actually what we're supposed to be focused on is God. So, does that help a little bit in terms of that one?
1: Look, I think so. And (laughs) interesting, isn't it? Because if we're talking about expressions of worship and the way you describe what liturgical worship looks like. Does that need to, by necessity, fit into the whole expression of what happens in church. Now, when you're talking about liturgical worship, I'm thinking of a cathedral where the acoustics are such that, you know, uh, things just sound incredible when you've got a choir singing or someone is or all are singing on the same note. Um, It's, you know, some people talk about the bells and the smells, Uh, (laughs) all of the different elements that actually take in what we think of as traditional worship Does does this style of liturgical musicianship need to have all of these other things around it?
0: When we're talking about cathedral worship, it it is different from your average parish. So in, in the suburbs, you've got your average parish, which is often carpeted and not necessarily with the same sort of acoustic or the same sort of musicians, quality of musicians, that you might have in the cathedral. So whereas the cathedral can be can have its worship being very high on the candlestick, if you like, all the bells and smells. Um, Depending on the occasion, of course, we don't want everything to be as high as we can possibly do it all year round. Otherwise, we would never have anywhere to go. So we need sort of um, progressive solemnity is, is the principle that we talk about in the Roman tradition with regard to that. But you compare the resources that a cathedral has available to it in terms of often professional music directors, professional organists, professional choirs, and they're putting in hours and hours of practice every week to achieve the standard they're achieving. Um, It's going to be different from your parish situation where often you've got volunteers who are not paid who just do it for the love of it and maybe do a quick rehearsal before worship and and then they they just get into it and do the best they can. Very different contexts and very different repertoires too. I suppose the idea of not wanting to include princess pop in, in liturgy is that it's just musically as a style it isn't actually, um, it doesn't fit very well with with what the liturgy as a whole is trying to do. And the same with death metal, you know, I mean, you've even got to look at the title, death metal. What is it glorifying? It's glorifying death. Now, that's not a Christian principle. And and a lot of the values that are um, purported in the lyrics and, and that sort of in the lyrics are not appropriate for inclusion in Christian worship. So once you sort of take it out of its death metal concert context and try to put that style into worship, you are bringing a lot of the context with it. And I think it's very, very difficult to divorce that context from the music itself the music is born of that context. And when you bring it into worship, it's it's glorifying something that isn't appropriate in, in the worship context.
1: As you say, the princess pop or the death metal sound uh, in the cathedral, it looks mm. out of place. Yeah. Um, when you've got a modern church building, uh, and it doesn't look anything like a cathedral, uh, looks more like a, a concert hall or a a uh, major entertainment venue, um, putting the liturgical style music into that, that's going to be out of place too, isn't it?
0: Not necessarily, no. I mean, I think what needs to be recognised is in the way that we celebrate or the way that we understand ourselves as church in the Roman tradition is that every diocese, has the bishop as its chief liturgist and its chief teacher. And every parish has a priest who is a representative of the archbishop in that parish. So ideally, the cathedral is modelling ideally what should happen in the parishes to the best of their ability. So the music likewise should be filtering out from the cathedral to the parishes. So it's it's not at all dependent on architecture. It's dependent upon us participating in the same worship style together. We... we use the same worship book to pray we often have a lot of the same musical repertoire because that's one of the ways in which we're unified together with our archbishop or our bishop who is our our chief prayer if you like of the whole diocese reg- regardless of whether it's cathedral or cathedral and all of the parishes together as one big church
1: you raise a really important point here because there's something special about sameness uh, where in some churches today, and it's not just uh, you know one tradition or one denomination that does this or one individual church, but oftentimes you've got different styles, different music every week in the praise and worship that happens in church. Is there a real advantage in having the sameness of a music style that has lasted a thousand years uh, in actually ensuring that what happens for the next thousand years actually goes on strong?
0: there's a need humans are very creative beings and we're always going to be expressing our love for god through new music being created and one of the things about the roman tradition is that we don't close the treasury of sacred music which we have we have a treasury but it's open so we're going to maintain certain things within it that are hopefully always going to be there and chant is one of those things that we hope will always be there but it's also open to new music we're we're not going to stop Re- writing music and writing new texts to express our love of god that's that's what humans do so we want to try and maintain that core but also allow it to expand now some things will stay in the repertoire some things will fall out of the repertoire because we get a bit tired of them and we want to change so this is where a good music director will make choices that have a mix of old and new but one of the things that's important is that we don't have new music every week because otherwise we'll never learn anything by heart you know and there's something about standing together and singing something by heart that is absolutely unifying in terms of the way that we bond together in prayer we're all singing something that is is in our bones, and it's so beautiful and so meaningful that it transforms us and transports us, and that's what we want. But we also get bored, so having new things come in is actually a really good thing too.
1: Claire, just most recently, of course, um, we had the funeral for Queen Elizabeth, and we had the king's coronation, and these were the biggest church services of the century, and in amongst that worship style was liturgical-style church. So this is not something that is really of the past, because it will continue to go on, especially in, in in royal family circles. What are your thoughts? Do you have any any reflection on the on the funeral or the king's coronation and the liturgical styles used there?
0: Oh, certainly they were magnificent events, and and just um, I think very unifying in terms of the way that, particularly the coronation, um, King Charles invited all sorts of representatives from different religious traditions and different Christian denominations to be present. And then we had this wonderful choir and singers who were leading the whole worship from the very, you know, from the the center of that beautiful cathedral. Um, and we had young boys and young girls singing together with, with um, men and women, you know, so it was it was sort of all generations singing this beautiful music. Now, some of it was newly created. We know there was a new piece by Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber who wrote all the wonderful musicals, Cats and Phantom and all the rest of it. He wrote a psalm for this. Um, and we had um, magnificent singers from, there was a beautiful soprano from South Africa who sang, and uh, um, Bryn Terfel, the wonderful baritone from Wales. So we had glorious music absolutely shining through um, that coronation uh, and, and the Anglicans do it absolutely beautifully. And there were so many um, wonderful takeaways from that, I think. And and I, I just look at the youngsters in that choir, for example, and how wonderful musicians they are. You know, they are standing there, um, their eyes focused on their director doing beautifully in terms of the sound that they're making and the prayer that they're conveying through that song. And it was just such a wonderful event to see.
1: And if you want to have faith passed on from generation to generation, there has to be something traditional. There has to be something old. There has to be something that has lasted the thousand years for that tradition to continue on, which leads us to the kids and the separation that a lot of young people might have from this style of worship. And, uh, you know, all churches have their liturgy style. How important is it, do you think, nurturing kids to appreciate finer music, finer worship, even these great traditions of the church?
0: It's extraordinarily important. Um, I was fortunate enough to grow up as a, a, you know, among a family that were regular church attendees, and I was also a singer, so I was high, I was sort of pulled out of class at one point we were having a class mass I was about seven and they knew that I sang in a children's choir outside of church and I was I was hauled up in the middle of church up to the microphone and asked to sing and I was sort of like okay here we go I'll do this as a seven-year-old it was just what I did it was you know, I could sing as much as I could speak. And that's one of the important things that kids have to learn. No music teacher should ever tell a child that they can't sing. That's the worst thing a music teacher can ever do. You might not be able to sing in tune, but if you can speak, you can sing. <laughs> yes. And in fact, singing is simply heightened speech. So moving people from speaking into singing is a really natural thing to do. And the reason that we started singing in church is projection, projection. You can actually project your voice much further when you sing than you can when you speak. So a thong- uh, sound is going to go much further in a church. Children get really intrigued by lots of things and when they're taught with passion and enthusiasm and you don't underestimate their capacity to take on new things and their intelligence when it comes to understanding things like music, um, you know, we we have to give them the opportunity to go as far as they possibly can with this. And if you teach them with passion and you you obviously love your subject, they're going to fall in love with it too. I've often been really surprised by what young people will end up liking when you provide them with a range of different music and the sorts of things that they end up picking out as their favourites. They're not necessarily what you might expect.
1: And they might even choose something that might be completely diametrically opposite what their parents think is right. And you never know, that, that's a possibility. Yeah, that's you know, right. uh, is there a big comeback uh, around the bend? Uh, in traditional uh, liturgical worship? Because, you know, I'm talking to you today and we're not hiding the fact that you'd love to see a whole lot of uh, children and young people drawn into uh, some liturgical worship styles. So is a comeback possible?
0: I don't know that we need a comeback. I think we just need to utilise what we've got now and and build on that for the future. So music was one of the ways that I maintain my contact with church when i was a teenager for example you know having the chance to be a maker of music in a worship context as a 14 15 year old was incredibly formative for me now i was you know somewhat musically gifted and i was surrounded by others who were a little bit older than me but also musically gifted but our church gave us the opportunity at that age to actually take a leadership role and to feel like this was welcome and enjoyed and important And I think we need to recognise the need for young people to be welcomed in that way, to feel like they've got a place in all of our worshipping assemblies and not just be sung at, but actually be the ones doing the singing, leading the singing. You know, If they've got skill, draw them in, for goodness sake, they're going to inspire lots of people, old and young, because they're wonderful music and worship leaders too.
1: Is it the case, you think, that if you're a part of a church that has some traditional liturgical worship, that somehow or other you've got to leave any excitement about any modern music styles at the door or leave them out of your life altogether? For some people, that's a big sacrifice. Can you appreciate modern music, even modern praise and worship music, and still have a passion for liturgical music styles?
0: absolutely absolutely you can and i think that's that's crucial going forward you know we we have to recognize that the style so long as it's not death metal or princess pop is actually quite appropriate you know we can draw in all sorts of different styles appropriately into worship the really important thing neil is that the theology that's conveyed is correct so if we've got a problem with the theology of the text for example then we can't use that in worship. But if if our music is written, is, if the text that we're using for our music, regardless of style, except for a couple of exceptions, if the text is scripturally based and theologically sound, then the style of music isn't quite so important, so long as it's good music of whatever style it is. Um, so if if you're wanting to do something that's that's Christian rock, if it's good quality christian rock and it's got really good scripturally based text and it's theologically sound for your particular tradition great bring it in but it doesn't mean that we lose the older stuff as well and i think this is the challenge for us is to try and maintain we we use particular styles of music on particular occasions for example you know doing something quite pared back and chant like on Good Friday, which is the most solemn day of the year for us, is absolutely appropriate. You wouldn't want to have something that's over the top and too happy on such a solemn occasion. So horses for courses in terms of music choice.
1: So for musicians, and sometimes you've got organ music and various things like that. uh, And as you're saying that in the Catholic tradition, there's this Gregorian chant, uh, learning how to do that. you know, is this something that, you know, every now and then you'll actually get a uh, some sort of a mainstream music hit that actually has some Gregorian chants in there? Um, this sort of thing, an appeal for young people, again, uh, if sure. you're a part of it as you're growing up, you're going to be more inclined to want to be involved in it, aren't you?
0: Absolutely. The the pipe organ particularly is fascinating because I think any, any young child who has the chance to play piano or learn piano potentially can play pipe organ. And the sooner we introduce them to the beauty of pipe organ, the more likely we're going to have a future generation of organists. And it is the most fantastic instrument, what it can do, the amazing sounds it can make, the range of different sounds those pipes can elicit. I think introducing young children to this instrument at a young age is really important because as you get older, it becomes more difficult for you to coordinate using both hands and both feet at once, which is quite a skill for the pipe organist. Um, But also, you know, there's no reason why we can't use pipe organ and guitar. Now I have a colleague who um, was the director of the Notre Dame Folk Choir in the U.S. in in Indiana, um, and he and his his he's a wonderful guitarist, and he would write music for whatever ensemble of students happened to be at the university that year. And his colleague was a pipe organist, so we would have pipe organ, we would have guitar, we would have violin, we would have flute, we would have bongos, we would have you know all sorts of instruments depending on who happened to be there with what skills that year. So I think we need to think beyond simply one genre for pipe organ. They can do all sorts of things and it's about our creativity then in terms of what other instruments we incorporate and what sorts of music that that it's used in.
1: Let's talk about a seminar that you've got coming up and you're wanting to use a seminar to inspire new generations in this style of liturgical worship. Uh, What have you got planned coming up on July 3rd through the 6th? Uh, at the ACU in Melbourne?
0: So we are looking specifically at liturgical music. So this is music for liturgy, for worship um, in that formal setting. And what that means is that it's different from music that you might use in catechesis. So if you're in, in religious education classes, there's music that's appropriate for there that isn't necessarily appropriate for liturgy. It's different from music in praise and worship concerts, because that is its own genre and not necessarily appropriate for liturgy. So we're, we're sort of demarcating what music is appropriate. So meditation music, well, liturgy is not, It has meditative moments, but it's not primarily meditation, so we don't use meditation music. Um, So we're trying to sort of help people understand what exactly liturgical music is, uh, a little bit about the history of it, Um, certainly the biblical foundations of music. You know, Christianity has always had music as part of its tradition. Our our scriptures attest to that. Um, Some of the purposes of music, some of the forms of music in liturgy, what the church teaches officially on music in liturgy, and how do we choose good music for liturgy? What does good music look like? So really interesting questions like that. And we're also going to look at a theology of sound. So we know from the beginning of scripture, we have God speaking and things happening. So sound, the voice, is utterly crucial in terms of the way that we understand the way we communicate with God. So what is this theology of sound that we're talking about in general? And then liturgical music as prayer So all those things and lots more. (laughs) Uh,
1: You know what? That is a lovely, well-rounded way of talking about uh, liturgical music. And if we were spending just a few moments before, we've got to say goodbye. But uh, these biblical foundations, uh, God speaking and things happening, uh, the creation, I mean, the wonder and the awe. I mean, is this where, where do you actually like to to draw some? some real treasure here in biblical foundations for the sort of liturgical music that you're, uh, that you're promoting and leading.
0: Yeah, well, we, we've got old Testament and new Testament references to music and, and, and music is understood and was understood by the early Christians too, as um, something that was a great power. So in the scriptures we hear about, um, you know, in, in first, in first Samuel, for example, David curing Saul's madness by playing the harp. So, so, this understanding that there's something curative or healing in music uh, is something that comes through to us in music therapy today. So, we've got this Old Testament notion and then we use it in contemporary music therapy when you go and work with patients in a hospital and sometimes harps are included in that as well, which is fascinating. But You know, helping people to express their fears through music, helping people to express their joys. It's very much about our emotions. And we as human beings, you know, as our scriptures tell us, are very emotional beings. You know, we've got a trumpet blasting down the walls of Jericho in Joshua. That's a trumpet. Do we think about that as music? We've got to do that sort of thing. Then we've got Paul and Silas in jail. And what are they doing? They're singing. (laughs) They're at midnight and they're singing. (laughs) Uh, Probably
1: psalms and hymns and spiritual (laughs) songs. Exactly right. Uh, Well, Claire, there'll no doubt be listeners who would love to be a part of a liturgical worship seminar. Let me just point listeners to how they can connect and connect personally, too, with Claire Johnson. Claire is Professor of Liturgical Studies and Sacramental Theology at ACU, the Australian Catholic University. She's based in Melbourne. And the... Liturgical Worship Seminar is coming up July 3rd to the 6th. It's 9am till 5pm at the ACU in Melbourne. And the way you can find out more detail and register to be a part of that is at acu.edu.au and look for a link there for the Centre for Liturgy. acu.edu.au. Look for that link to the Centre for Liturgy. Claire, thank you so much for taking some time to share these... Alternative and yet traditional, fabulous ways of thinking about how lots of people in the church around the world do worship today. Uh, Thanks for being with us on 2020.
0: Thank you so much, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.